Okay, um, we are going to jump straight into reading God's Word this morning. Uh, we're in Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. Uh, if you've been with us over the last little while, we've been walking through this series in Revelation. So it's always, you know, this is one of these series that's actually really nice, you know, because nobody feels embarrassed when they try to open their Bible and find the book that you're in. You know, when you're in like Habakkuk and someone's like, where is it? Have to embarrassingly look at the index for the book, right? Uh, Revelation goes straight to the end, right? Chapter 3. Verses 7 to 13, and this is God's word. To the church in Philadelphia, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. Okay, so, Revelation series. This is week seven. If you've been with us, well done. You've made it through all seven weeks. If you haven't, you can catch up online. They're all there on the YouTube and podcast stuff and all that good stuff, okay? But if you've been with us over the last number of weeks, well, I should say first before I do anything else, there are an awful lot of you here today that are new Uh, since the start of the year. And I just want to make sure that you feel welcome in this place. I want to extend to you uh, a welcome this morning. Maybe you're looking for a church. Maybe you've just moved to Belfast. Maybe you've been here over the last number of weeks. You're trying to settle down. You're trying to put down roots. Whatever it is, I want to say that you are really welcome here at Central this morning. We are so glad to have you. Whether you're here for keeps, whether you're here for a short time, whether you're here to heal through a season of life that you're in, that's okay. We are so glad to have you here. I really hope you've been welcomed warmly. I hope you've connected with some other people. And more than anything else, I hope that you encounter Jesus in this place. There's this incredible uh, quote from Leonard Sweet. And he writes that I only want to write one thing over the doorpost to, to my life. And that is Jesus Christ lives here. And it's one of our kind of things around this church is that we only really want to write one thing above the door, not Presbyterian church, not church plan, not vibrant community of believers, which every church has on their website, right? What we want to write, Jesus Christ lives here. I hope you encounter Jesus in this place where you're at, whatever season of life you're in, whatever life is thrown at you. I hope this is a place where you encounter Jesus. And whereas we walk through this, this kind of series in Revelation, right? That line that we just sang is the heart of the book of Revelation. The lamb has overcome. I hope this is a place where you meet the lion who's really a lamb. I hope this is a place where you meet the lamb who has overcome. 
Anyway, right, that's sidetrack, right? We've been in this series. It's week seven, okay? Exploring the letters written to the churches uh, in the book of Revelation, okay? There are seven letters to seven churches. They are real churches in the real world, in real places, going through their own stuff, right? So that's what we've been trying to get across, right? I get that Revelation very often is kind of, kind of big picture-y, uh, quite strange language at times. And so sometimes whenever you think that letters like these are also kind of a bit out there, right? But they're not. They're letters to real churches in real places going through real stuff, right? And so as we've been going through this over the last seven weeks or so, there's been affirmation and critique. There's been the struggle to live as kingdom people in an empire world. We've read about suffering and persecution, poverty, but yet we've also read about deep faith and deep commitment to the way of Jesus. We've read about the call to distinctiveness, the call to intimacy. We've read about how the repeat messages hold on, hold fast, the big kind of narrative in there, don't give up and don't give in. And so we've got to week seven now. The writer is John, right? But the author is Jesus. As we make our way through, you need to remember again and again that the writer is John. It was written literally by his hand, right? But the author is Jesus. And these are letters to the churches in Asia Minor, but they are for us today. Like they might have been to a literal place in a time and place in history, right? But they are for us today. Dear church, Jesus writes, and may his words lead us to become the future church that he speaks of. And today he writes to the church in Philadelphia, right? And it's at this point in the service that everything in me wants to break into well, this is the story all about I, my life. Right, I can't help myself, right? That's where I want to go. Okay, I'm not going to do it, right? Because that, that's, that's not going to be good on the podcast, right? But all I can think about is the Fresh Prince, right? The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Uh, most of you are too young to remember how gloriously brilliant the 90s TV program it was, right? But you had Will and Carlton, Uncle Phil, Hillary, Jeffrey the butler, right? It was incredible. Feel-good TV at its best. Apparently, there's like a remake coming imminently, which will be awful compared to the original, right? But uh, I like to say that this picture of the letter to the church in Philadelphia is a picture of the same joy and feel good and laughter and all of that stuff that the picture, that that, that uh, show was back in the 90s. But it's not really. It's more like what I think of when I think about the 1993 movie, Philadelphia. It's a masterpiece, right? If you've never seen it, you should. It's Incredible! It's got one of the best soundtracks ever for a movie. It's just absolutely incredible. And in the movie, uh, the kind of lead character is a gay, high-flying lawyer called Andy, who's played by Tom Hanks, right? And he contracts AIDS uh, and is then dismissed kind of uh, unlawfully from his high-flying job in a very, like, posh law firm, right? And so he takes a court case against his former employers, uh, and uh, he can't get anyone to represent him because of just the way things were in the world at that time. His health goes downhill, uh, and kind of the movie kind of tracks that as it goes along. Eventually, Joe, right, which is Denzel Washington with a magnificent mustache, okay, he takes the case. Joe's more used to, like, car crash claims and things like that, but he takes the case, even though Joe is at heart hugely homophobic. And I won't say any more about the movie because I've got this track record of ruining movies for people, right? But So I'm not going to say any more. It's an incredible movie. You should go and watch it, right? But reflecting back on that movie now, years since its release, many critics remark on how the audiences of the day were totally broken by Andy's story, okay? 
Like they affiliated with Andy as they watched the movie, even though in reality, they were much closer to Joe than they were to Andy. And the same thing happens again and again and again when we read Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, don't we? Like Jesus' harshest words are very often what he has to say to the Pharisees. They clashed over all kinds of issues, right? And when we read them, we're so quick to associate ourselves with Jesus and to think to ourselves, thank goodness I'm not like those Pharisees. When the reality is we're closer to the Pharisee than we are to Jesus, aren't we? And I say that today because along with the church in Smyrna, Philadelphia is a church for whom Jesus has no critique. There's two churches out of the seven for which Jesus has no critique. He only has affirmation for them. And there's this pattern, okay, in the seven letters to the churches where seemingly Jesus' hardest words were for the churches who on the outside were doing the best, right? Like the sorts of churches you drive past on a Sunday morning and you think, goodness, I would love to go there, right? The sorts of places there's a buzz around. The sorts of places that have a killer Instagram, right? Jesus' hardest words are for those churches, Seemingly the places that on the outside are the strongest, Jesus says, are the most broken, most dead, most asleep, most ghosting their way into destruction. Those are the ones for whom he has the hardest words for. And yet Jesus seems to have no critique for the weakest. He has no critique for the weakest. And the thing is that when we read things like the letters to the seven churches, we're so quick to jump in our hearts to associate ourselves with the places like Philadelphia and Smyrna and distance ourselves from the places that Jesus had the hardest words for, right? So quick to jump to think, well, I go to a church like that, right? Like we expect the pat on the back when the reality is that for the vast majority of us churches in the West, we're strong, aren't we? We're strong. And we're in a culture that in the main, at best, accepts us and at worst, tolerates us. The reality is we're in the strong shoes. And again and again through the New Testament, okay, Jesus seems to have this theme, right? Where the first are last and the last are first. Where the poor are rich, where the weak are strong, where the way to life is death, right? It's flipped all the time. It's the opposite way all the time. And so when we come to passages like this one today, it's about trying to humble ourselves, to recognize in ourselves our desire to be strong, don't we? Like we have this desire to be strong, to be successful, to avoid weakness at all costs. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, right? If the biblical narrative is that the weak are strong, who wants to be weak? Honestly, who wants to be the weak ones? Nobody. And yet Jesus has the affirmation for the weak churches and the hardest words for the strong. See, it's more likely that Jesus would tell us to wake up than well done. So what does Jesus have to say to Philadelphia? And how does that speak to us where we stand today? Well, I think Jesus is talking about lots of things in this letter, but there's just two things we're going to dig into today. The first is opposition and the second is opportunity. This is a letter that talks about opposition, and also it talks about opportunity. The first is opposition. Let's just read those first couple of verses, okay? These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. 
I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So we're in Philadelphia this week. Quick geography bit, because I know we all love this. This is the bit you're all waiting for every week, is the geography of the letters, okay? So Philadelphia is about 30 miles, okay? It's about 30 miles southeast of Sardis, where we were a number of weeks ago, okay? And predominantly, it was a city that's known for its name. That's kind of the thing enduring that people remember about Philadelphia. It's quite literally brotherly love. Okay, that's what it means. It, it got its name from King Attalus, who was a Pergamonian king. He, eventually, he, he kind of set up the city, and he had this special relationship with his brother, right? He loved him very much, and so the city got its name from his nickname, which was literally brother lover, okay? And so the city, Philadelphia, meant brotherly love. This was wine-producing country and a part of the world that was a city of great Greek culture, but also had deep devotion to Rome, okay? So that's kind of what you've got to think whenever you think about the people and the church of this time. And where it was placed, it was seen as of key importance within the Roman Empire as a place to promote unity, customs, and most of all, loyalty. And as with all the letters, okay, it starts with Jesus describing himself. It's different features. That first vision that John has in chapter one, if you remember right back, okay, he has this grand vision of Jesus with all sorts of features. And then each week, uh, as we've explored this, there's been a different feature that's been the Jesus that talks to each of these churches. Very often the feature has something to do with what he's going to tell them, okay? And this week, the Jesus who speaks to the church in Philadelphia is this one. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. So what's that got to do with what he's got to say to Philadelphia, right? What's that got to do with them? The thing I find incredible about this, by the way, side note, is that this is Jesus talking about himself. Like Jesus is describing himself week on week as we've went through this, okay, in, in these letters, right? It's not just that someone is talking about him. It's that Jesus is describing himself, the one who's present, the one who wants to be close, the one who has power and authority and all of the things that we've discovered over the last number of weeks. And this week here, he's holy and he's true. And these are words that are kind of absolutely central to Yahweh, who was the God of, of the Jews, really, and the nation of Israel. It was the name for God that the Israelites had followed throughout their existence, okay? And the one who is holy and true, right? Those are kind of core identities to who he was, who he is. They would know him maybe predominantly that he was these things. More than anything, he was these things. The one who is truly able to judge and see things how they really are. So this is like a hark back for the people of Israel. Like they would know what this means. And on top of that, he's holding the key of David, okay? So that's a reference to Isaiah 22, where Eliakim is given the key of David, which really means he's given power and authority to do and be able to do what the Lord needs him to do at that time to lead his people. Why is that important? It's significant because this is a story right at the heart of Jewish history. The Jesus who speaks is one who holds an identity right at the heart of Jewish history. The key of David is a story. Eliakim would have been a story right at the heart of Jewish history. A promise given to Israel that they would have known. And it's significant because what's taking taken place here is that there's opposition within the people of God. 
So this is like the God who they would know is talking to them. This is the one who is holy and true, who has authority. And perhaps most significantly is the God that the Jews of the synagogue would recognize. And yet, they hadn't. They hadn't. That's the context of today's passage. They hadn't recognized him. And so the picture has probably been pretty bleak for the people in Philadelphia. And a whole part of this revolves around status, okay? A whole part of it is all about status. You see, the mainstream Jewish faith would have had certain status, and along with that status would have been certain protections and alliances for them. If you remember over the first couple of weeks, we talked about that, that the mainstream Jewish faith in some of these cities had kind of done deals with Rome to kind of step towards them, but only so far, right? They would honor uh, Caesar, but they wouldn't worship him, was kind of the general idea. They would give him honor, but not worship. And so along with that came certain protections, right? They were kind of shielded from some of the worst if they gave Caesar just enough honor that that he wouldn't persecute them, right? That was kind of the vibe that was going on at the time. And so it reminds me like when we moved into this building, okay? So we move in, it doesn't look like this when we move in. We're doing all the renovation work, we're kind of trying to get on top of what it might mean to own this building. And one day the mail arrives, okay? And I go downstairs, I pick the mail up, and it's a letter from Land and Property Services, okay? So this is the first kind of big thing that's arrived at the church. So I go up into the office, I open it up, I see that it's a rates bill. I open it up, and the headline figure on the rates bill is... £23,952.78, right? And I'm like, hold the flipping phones, right? Nobody told me there was a £24,000 bill coming to us as a church. Like, we're church people. We don't have 24000 just like sitting around somewhere to cough up for the rates people. So I'm like freaking out. I'm like, I'm going to have to call like a leadership meeting. We're going to have to cancel the whole thing. We don't have 24000 right? Church is over, right? There's no way we can make this happen. And then I turn over the letter. And it says, rates due, £23,952.78. Next line, exempt value due to property use, minus £23,952.78. And I'm like, it's fine, guys. Church is back on. There's no problems, right? But we're protected, right? There's a degree of status that we are because we're a religious organization in a country that by and large has had a religious past, and so we are protected, via our status, from the rates that would apply if we were trying to run a nightclub or whatever from this particular building in the heart of the city center. And the same could be said for the protections and the civic status that the mainline Jewish faith had. But it appears that they used their status to try and remove that that the Christians might have had. These Christians aren't with us, is essentially what they were doing. And so they would have lost their protections. They would have lost any status that they had. And as we found out over the last number of weeks, that's a dangerous place to be. And so it appears that they've known struggle at the hands of those who Jesus calls the synagogue of Satan, right? These are strong words, okay? I mean, I think we recognize that from the get-go. Anybody called the synagogue of Satan is probably not that great. And more so, he says, these are also the ones who lie. One biblical interpreter calls it pseudo-Jews. This is the synagogue of Satan. These are pseudo-Jews. And at the heart of it was this question, right? Who are the true Jews? There's the synagogue, the mainline guys, they're strong. And then there's this kind of ragtag bunch of Christians that the synagogue Jews are trying to kind of distance themselves from and say, no, they're not with us. Who are the true Jews? 
You've got mainline, powerful history status. And on the other side, you have this church with their little strength, Jesus says. It's likely the little strength is referring to numerical numbers, okay? So in this relatively large city, there was probably only 30 or 40 Christians making up this church in Philadelphia at the time. Here's the bottom line. They had no particular strength to meet the challenges of their day. They had no particular strength to meet the challenges that were before them. They had no real resource. They had no real size. They were having, seeing their status eroded from them. They had, no, they had no particular strength to meet the challenges of their day. But then neither do we, do we? It's not like we have any particular strength within us to meet the challenges of the day and age in which we live, do we? to meet the things that come up against us, the stuff that's in our lives, the challenges that it means just to be you and I in 2022. We have no particular strength within us just to get by, do we? And it seems to me that one of the messages in Philadelphia and all of the letters, okay, is that the church is not the real church, is not the true church when it goes after status. It seems to me again and again that the church is not the church when it goes after status, when it goes after position, when it tries to use the apparatus of the state or the influence of the empire to be the church. That's just not us. We are kingdom people in an empire world. So what were they then? If they weren't like them, right? If the mainline guys are saying they're not with us, if they weren't going after status, if they weren't going after influence, what were they? And what were they doing? Well, it seems nothing spectacular is the answer, right? It seems that they're not particularly doing anything spectacular, right? Jesus says that this church, he receives no critique, right? The ones who were the true Jews, okay? They just kept my word and have not denied my name, right? I mean, that is incredible to me that that's it, right? These are people who get no critique, and Jesus only has to say to them that all they did was kept my word and have not denied my name, okay? I mean, compared to some of the things, some of the praise that Paul lavishes on some of the New Testament churches in his letters, right? Lavishes praise on them for some of the things they did, how generous they were, how boldly they lived, how radically they loved, how effectively they told others about Jesus. I mean, Paul waxes lyrical in letters to lots of these churches, but here it seems it's just the basic stuff, isn't it? You kept my word. You stayed true to my name. If this was a relationship, right? Like a loving human relationship. It's just showing up. It's just staying faithful. It's just being committed. It's putting the bins out on Tuesday night type stuff, right? It's core, low level stuff, isn't it? It's just basic faithfulness. Like it feels like the bare minimum, doesn't it? I believed in you and I never left. That's basically it. But here's the thing. We have the privilege of marrying quite a few people around the life of our church at the stage that we're at, okay? And there's, there's that kind of bit in the movie Madagascar, right? You can tell at what stage of life I'm at where most of my movie references are children's movies, right? But there's this bit in the movie Madagascar, right, where the wedding takes place and... Um, uh, King Julian is kind of officiating the wedding as only he could. And he does this part where he comes along and he says, for better or for worse, and he goes, for better, right? And there's this thing whenever marriages happen, okay, where we do that line. We say it every time, right? For better or for worse. 
And the fact of the matter is, how could we possibly know what for worse would look like? How could we possibly know? Like, how could we possibly know how bad worse would be if worse comes? Would it be the sort of thing we back out from, the sort of thing we throw it, we just throw the tile in because worse has arrived? How could you know what worse would be like? Like, of course, we'd never choose worse. But here's the key that whether better better comes or whether worse, though I have no way of choosing, the key is that I choose you. The key is that I choose you. And this is the thing about the church in Philadelphia, right? The thing is that as the question roared about who the true Jews were, and the mainline Jews, they were hoping, they were waiting, they were expecting a Messiah, whatever that looked like to them at the time. The Christians, they just believed in him, in Jesus. They just believed in him. So while the mainline Jews had a belief in a Messiah and it had politics and ancient hopes and the dream that one day Rome would be smashed and they would be vindicated as the true people and all of that sort of stuff, right? When that was going along, the Messiah thing was like an idea, wasn't it? But the Christians, they just loved Jesus. Whether better or worse came, they chose him. They chose him. It was personal. It was attached to a real person that had lived and died and risen again. It was attached to Jesus, the person of Jesus, to his name, to what he had done. They chose him. Here's the thing. Here's how this relates to us today. This isn't about believing all the right things about Jesus. This isn't about just believing all the right things about him. We've read it all before. We've heard it all before, right? Just believing the right things about him. We find it so easy just to go along with things and go through the motions and carry on, right? Yet these were the true people of God because they chose to believe in Jesus. There's opposition in all of our lives, isn't there? Truth is, there's opposition in all of our lives in the many forms that it comes, whether it's a phone screen and it's another world trying to draw you into that world, right? Whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's habits, whether it's a history, whatever it is, there's opposition in all of our lives. The things that we're struggling with and wrestling through, stuff that seems beyond us. And the truth is that we know down deep that we don't have the resources to meet the stuff that's in our lives. And the message here is that just believing the right things about Jesus won't be enough either. The truth is, we know that already, don't we? We know that when the struggle comes and the opposition comes and the worst comes in our lives, just believing the right things about Jesus won't meet the struggle that we're in, will it? Just believing the right things about him won't get us through. We need to believe in Jesus him. We need to know him. We need Jesus to meet us where we are. We need to choose him and choose him enough to believe that we might have faithful witness to Jesus and look like Jesus. That's the truth. That's what we need. So how were they marked, right? Because that's what it's getting at at the end of this little block, okay? How were they marked by this? One might think it was their love, okay? 
One might think it was their actions, but that's not what the passage says. They weren't marked by how they loved him. It didn't look extravagant. Rather, because they chose him, they were marked by how they were loved by him. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. We're marked by how we're loved. Not as the ones who won the argument or have all the right answers or have all of our lives together. Not by our extravagance, certainly not by our search for status. In the end, we are and will be marked by the one who says, I love this one, and I love this one, and I love this one, and this one, and this one. There was opposition. And the church in Philadelphia was weak, but also it was loved. The letter to the Philadelphians was about, was about opposition. But secondly, it was about opportunity. The second thing it was about was opportunity. As we read on uh, in verse 11, we're not going to go into verse 10, okay, because there's a massive debate about the pre-tribulation, post-tribulation status. It's a whole thing, right? It doesn't necessarily help us as we kind of make our way through this today. We would need a whole session to talk about post and pre-tribulation, which is like, you know, high-end stuff. So we're not like skipping past that, okay? But we kind of are, right? So go to verse 11, okay? Verse 11 to 13, this is what it says. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When I was pretty young, my brother and I took a trip to America. And we went to stay with some friends that lived in Seattle. And around that time, they took like a trip to L.A. So we went with them to L.A. And one of my enduring memories of that trip, kind of funnily looking back, is this experience of arriving in the hotel in L.A. And the first thing I saw when we walked in was this kind of like guide on the table. It was a safety booklet on what to do in case of an earthquake, right? Now, I'm from Belfast, right? I know how to navigate bomb scares and plastic bullets. But an earthquake was like something completely outside of like, I mean, we've, I mean, as far as I know, I've never lived through an earthquake. And some part of me really desperately wanted to, right? After that, I'm like, this is going to be class, right? It, I mean, it probably wouldn't have been, but the earthquake never happened while we were there, okay? And I say that today because this part of Asia Minor was really famous for earthquakes. They happened regularly and they were catastrophic when they happened. Uh, and in fact, a huge earthquake had hit the city of Philadelphia about 50 years before this book had been written. Rome had forked out the money for the repair job. And so it had been a massive kind of thing in that part of the world. And the thing is that in the ancient world, okay, the most dangerous places you could be were huge, grand buildings. Like, for example, a temple. Why? Because huge falling stones and an earthquake are not a particularly good idea, right? So they were the most dangerous places in the event of an earthquake. And this was a place that knew all about earthquakes. And so there's this whole building narrative to this particular letter to the church in Philadelphia. You can see it where you are, okay? Key, door, city, temple, pillar, right? These are all kind of building type references going on. Why? Because they were a place that knew all about rebuilding. They're all connected. It's a picture. And it's a picture of the temple made of human beings built on the foundation of Jesus. That's essentially the heart of that picture. This is the place where God is going to make his home in you 
and in I. This is the place where his home will be. And it will be a home built on solid ground that won't be shaken, where the temple is not the most dangerous place to be because it's built on the rock. And the incredible thing is that Jesus says, right, we are to be pillars. And this is not the first time, okay, that followers of Jesus are called pillars. In Galatians 2, the reference is to leaders who are called pillars, okay? And in lots of ways that makes sense, right? Leaders being called pillars. But here's the thing, these aren't leaders, This is a church that we've already found out is weak, is small in number, has just done the basic stuff of being faithful, of holding on, and yet Jesus says, you are going to be pillars. You are to be pillars. These are everyday followers of Jesus. And here's the incredible thing, right? Jesus says, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Jesus doesn't just promise to make a pillar to us or for us. That's the significant thing about this. He's not just talking about promising to honor them, right? By making some sort of pillar or structure or anything else to their name. The promise is to make them pillars. In other words, we aren't plaques, you and I. We aren't plaques. We aren't being made into some sort of monument to something we did or God did, right? The promise is to be a pillar. In other words, in a city renowned for being shaken, in 2022, the phrase would be shook, right? We were shook. In a city renowned for being shaken, God says you're going to be a pillar in the thing I'm doing here. I'm building around you to this tiny church in an important city, God says, I'm building around you. I'm building around you. You don't feel ready, I'm building around you. You're weak, I'm building around you. You don't know what you think about this or that, I'm building around you. You've got doubts, I'm building around you. You've got stuff going on in your life, I'm building around you. The promise, right? And it is a promise. The opportunity is that in first to be a part, a functional part of what God is doing. That's the opportunity to you and to I today, that we get to be a functional part of what God is doing. Not just leaders, not just the gifted ones, not just the ones who look like they've got their life together, right? That you and I, just faithful, everyday followers of Jesus, we get to be a functional part of what Jesus is doing here in Belfast. But secondly, the promise goes on from that, okay? Because what was he doing? Well, he was building. He was building. So right at the start of the passage, God promises this. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut, okay? An open door is what he promises. And throughout Scripture, this is seen as a picture of opportunity, okay? Uh, again and again, that's, that's what that means. So just a couple of references. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul writes, But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many more who might oppose me. 2 Corinthians 2, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened the 
door for me, Colossians 4, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, right? An open door meant an opportunity again and again, but not just an opportunity for our entry into God's kingdom and God's future, right? But also the way by which others get brought into. It's not just an opportunity extended to you to be part of what he's doing. It means that as you join with what he's doing, it's an opportunity to those who are outside right now. This is the invite and the promise, not just to be built around, but to be built around as part of God's mission to the world. And yet Jesus says, I set before you an open door, but you have little strength. That's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? Like it seems that an open door and little strength aren't particularly strategic, right? And make no mistake, Philadelphia was a strategic place. It was known as a gateway city. In fact, one commentator writes of it, the apostle of Hellenism in an oriental land. In other words, this was the gateway for Hellenistic culture and influence to the rest of the world. It was the open door into their culture to turn the whole world Greek. That's the kind of place this was. And yet Jesus says, open door, strategic place, little strength. And it's that weak, strong thing again, isn't it? It's that weak, strong thing. So much in the news of the last number of weeks about Russia and Ukraine, okay, around Russian activity on the Ukrainian border. Satellite images uh, throughout the week showed a field hospital being built, 20 attack helicopters moved into place, troops running training drills. It's a strategic place between these two nations, right? And Russia has moved in with strength. What does Jesus do in a gateway city? He lifts up a weak group of people in a strategic place, but he says you've got an open door. It's that weak, strong thing again. And here's the risk in our lives. There's no critique for this church, but if I'm honest, there's a risk because I see it all the time in the world and in the church in which we live and operate in. The risk is this, that if we're honest, our little strength usually means we respond with little risk, don't we? Like when we have little, we respond by taking little risks with little boldness, with little adventure, with little expectation that something might happen with the little strength that we have. I spent so much time around stuff in my denomination and see time and time again that as resources run down and churches get small, so too does our sense of adventure and pretty soon so too does our expectation. Little strength very often means little risk in our lives. That's fine to point the finger at organizations, maybe a previous church experience, maybe even this church for having little expectation. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we do it too. In our personal lives, in our walk with Jesus, we are entirely guilty of exactly the same thing. Do you know what it's called? Settling. It's called settling. We settle. And we settle for the mediocre, don't we? The risk is with little strength comes settling into the mediocre in our lives. Like we don't deny Jesus, right? And we we don't walk away. It's just that the little faith that we have, we don't expect them to do anything anymore. 
And we have this, we live in a world that has this habit of squashing us down and grinding us down, doesn't it? Like I think all of us, if you've been a Christian any length of time, can pay testimony to people who've been around you in your life. Maybe it's you yourself that went from spiritually alive, like buzzing at some point in your life, like floating in the highlands, right? Right right up here. And then eventually over time, that faith just gets squashed down and squashed down and squashed down until eventually one day you settle. And then eventually you may even become just low-grade cynical about the church and about what Jesus might do in your life and in your world. We settle in and we settle down. We need to remember the promise that Jesus makes to the church in Philadelphia. This is a strategic place. This is a group of little strength, but the promise is vast. The promise, an open door. It's an open door. We need to remember that though the stuff in front of us in our lives, or maybe even in our past, can be so very big that we live into a life with an open door. There is an opportunity available to us every single day to access all of the resources of heaven that we might see the kingdom come in our world and in our lives that others might encounter Jesus too. Undeserved favor, right, is is the promise at the heart of being. So Jesus says, I'm going to make you a pillar. What was at the heart of being a pillar? Undeserved favor, love, because I have loved you you. Undeserved favor. We're marked by our being loved. And as a result, God builds around us. But an open door is the promise at the heart of our living. The core of our being is being loved. But the core of our living is that we live into a life with an open door. N.T. Wright writes this. They are to be marked out publicly as God's people, as Jesus' people, as citizens of the city where heaven and earth will be joined forever. The question today is, don't you want to be marked out like that? Don't you want to be marked out like that? People here are loved. You know who they are because they know that they're loved. Where your past becomes less important because you're loved. Where the stuff that's in front of you becomes less important because you're loved where the pain is met by the love of God, where the fundamental ground on which you stand is you are loved, that you might know at the end that Jesus would say, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. But the challenge is to live into a life that recognizes that there is an opportunity in your life, that the door is open, it's not shut, There may be opposition in our world. There might be reasons why you feel I could never share my faith. I could never be honest about what I believe or who I am or all of that sort of stuff. You live into an open door in this life. Don't you want to be marked like that? Marked out as citizens of a place where heaven and earth meet. In here. In here. And in the context of your lives. If anything, the church in Philadelphia shows us that we're not us. If we go after influence and status and position and just to be the best church in town. That we're us when we're this. When we're people who know we're loved. And when we're people who live like there's an open door. 
And the question today is, don't you want that? Because that's the church that Belfast is longing for. That's the kind of belief that your friendship circle and your family and the people who are around you are longing for. To be the sort of person who is grounded in love, rooted in love, made into a pillar that's being built around, but living into a life with the expectation of an open door.